The Jump is a podcast created to help us all understand the future and to separate fact from fiction. The number of issues we as leaders must focus on is mind-blowing. There is no way to understand everything that will impact your company and leadership. The Jump will help you make sense of innovation and changes in technology, politics, well-being, science and climate, and money, which is shaping our collective future and how those things may impact you. Join me, Forbes columnist and founder of Accountability, Inc., Rep Power. And myself, Stan Stoniker, the author and founder of Hub Culture. On this journey to make sense of the future. This is The Jump. Hey, I'm Stan Stoniker, and we are back with our third episode of a series called The Jump, co-hosted by Rhett Power from Accountability, Inc., myself, Stan Stoniker from Hub Culture, and right now we're pleased to welcome John Van Gelder. He's a global head of impact for Grounded, which is an organization working on climate solutions. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're, we're glad to be back here at Neuhaus in New York City, hosting us for these conversations. We're going to learn all about how Grounded is helping the rest of us make the jump toward climate solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing as head of impact? Yeah. So it's literally my second week on the job. So we're a large part of that is figuring out what we're doing next with Grounded. But a large part of my role as head of impact is just kind of working at this intersection of media and policy. And there's a lot within media, you know, that's content, that's pop like influencer strategy. It's, you know, earned media, ad campaigns, you name it. So it's like learning how to use our media landscape along with digital organizing and grassroots organizing and coalition building to impact policy change. For climate? For climate change, yeah. How do you get people to care about climate? Because I think that's the struggle that that we see, right? And and trying to get our government, get our our legislators to to care, to, to, to take action. I mean, we do, we've seen, in fact, we've seen no progress on that, really, very little. Uh, even we've seen the opposite of progress. We've seen threatening the, the, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. I mean, this is, um, so how do you get people to, to move the needle on this issue? Because yeah. it just, how do you get people to care when there's so much else going on in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the way I would answer that is people do care about climate. Like the majority of Americans care and the majority of Americans now want climate action. The challenge when you're communicating about climate though is like people just want to know what to do. I I think we're past the point now where people need to be educated on the fact that this is real or that we need to do something about it. Like when you talk to people, even people who don't work in politics, like they know this is a problem. It's starting to impact us in our day-to-day lives, right? Yeah, when your house burns down and there's no water. Just right, yeah. I mean, in in every part of the country, right? Like right now, Californians are rationing water in like the worst drought in 1,200 years. Alaska's on fire in the worst wildfire season they've had in eight decades. You've got farmers that are losing their crops because of, I mean, eight states that produce one-fifth of our Right, in the Midwest, one-fifth of our, our of domestic U.S. food production is grown in eight states, and the aquifer that supports those eight states is, like, drying up as we speak. So people get it. The challenge is twofold. Number one, there's structural issues, like, within 
the government, and there are a lot of people in government at the highest levels who do care as well, and there are a lot of reasons why their hands are tied, and we can talk about that, but in terms of people, like, they care, but there's only so much information we can hold about why this is bad. At this point, what I'm starting to notice is people just want to know, like, what do you need me to do, and what can we all do together, and who's leading this to push this forward? So what can we do? Another great question. Yeah, I mean, there are a ton of solutions, but the way we've started to think about it at Ground is like, what are the most strategic things we can do right now where if we do this one thing, it would support all of the other things within this bucket and would also take a huge chunk out of, you know, our missions and, and out of solving like this massive crisis. So, you know, these are still early conversations that we're having with a bunch of different people, but the way I've started to look at it from just our, our, you know, our team is there are three things that we need to accomplish. There's immediate, and it's, it's sort of in the time scale, like immediate and like very, very soon, and then like a, a longer overarching strategy. And so the most immediate thing when we think about solving climate change is stopping more emissions from entering the atmosphere to that, that exacerbates the problem, right? In order to do that, there's been a lot of focus in the climate movement on, you know, just being anti-fossil fuel and, and, and saying we don't like fossil fuels. There has not been a ton of work building the off-ramp, right? And focused on building clean energy alternatives, exactly. So we're doing a ton of awesome work right now. We have a campaign called Clean Energy Freedom that launched a couple months ago. That's united really an unprecedented coalition of pop stars and veterans and national security experts and climate activists and clean energy leaders in this coalition calling for clean energy independence, largely driven by the fuel prices. And I hate to interrupt, but yeah. are you including industry in those conversations? Yeah, clean energy industry leaders are, 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 have been part of the coalition, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nobody wants to go to bed without their lights on, right? But at the same time, we have to make this transition renewables right now account for less than 10% of the grid. Right. How are we going to get it to where it needs to be? Well, the good news is President Biden has taken some really historic steps very recently to do exactly that. So I don't, on June 6th, the administration issued an executive order invoking the Defense Production Act to ramp up clean energy production in the United States, which has not been done before. And it's like, exactly the kind of bold action needed to to get from that 10% to a much larger share of our energy market. Um, what's left is Congress needs to pass some additional funding to make sure that happens, including the reconciliation bill we've heard so much about. Um, and some of that happened in the infrastructure bill. A lot of it did. And that goes like the Department of Energy has like over $60 billion right now to get this started. So they are using that and that's exciting and, and no one talks about it nearly enough, like the amount of, of investments they have already passed. What kind of projects are you when you, when you say? It's across the board. I mean, there's, you can kind of think about it in four different sectors. There's like solar panels, a lot of, we need a lot of rooftop solar. There's wind, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of building, like building construction shops and this to insulate and like weatherize our homes. Because if you are going to up, upgrade your home to, to solar, like one of the steps in that process is they go through and make sure your, your house is as, as efficient as possible. And the other big thing is like we need more journeymen, more electricians to like update the energy grid so it can handle solar energy, which is 
not to get too in the weeds, but our current system is like a one-way street from the power plant to your home. Solar energy, because you're producing it on your home, requires like a two-way street between your solar panel and the grid. So we need more electricians to do that. And that's there's money in the bipartisan infrastructure law that they're using for some of that. And then they're also working um, in Congress to, to pass some additional appropriations and investments. So John, you talk about there are several buckets for how we need to essentially save our asses yeah. in climate change. Can you talk about those three buckets? Yeah, so top line, the way we think about it is, number one, stopping more emissions going into the atmosphere, um, building that off-ramp. Number two is drawing down what emissions are currently floating around in the air, because even if we stop you know, more carbon from being pumped into the atmosphere, tomorrow there's enough out there that's gonna wipe us all out anyway, right? So we need to start drawing that down. And then the third is a longer term strategy to reimagine our legal frameworks, not just in the US, but internationally, to really enshrine the rights of nature in our legal frameworks um, and the right to nature, the right to a livable planet in our legal frameworks to sort of, I call this the prevention track, right? If we stop the problem, we reverse the problem with the first two buckets, this kind of prevents it so we can't, you know, find we don't find ourselves in a position like this. I see a huge messaging problem in that, right? Why is that? How, how do you get middle America or somewhere else in the world to, to say that the, that the, the environment has rights? Great question. I mean, because I think part of the failing of, of a lot of these movements is how we message it, yeah, right? And how we get people to buy in, to buy in yeah. and to believe. How do we message that? Yeah. I'm now just shooting from the hip because this is the That's question we're trying to answer. But, you know, let's start with like, how do I get there? Like, how do I understand this? And for me, it's like, it makes inherent sense to me because I realize I will not survive unless you guys survive and like other people survive, right? And we've seen this in the pandemic. Great example. I think a lot of us learned how interconnected we are as people. One of us gets sick. A lot of us can get sick. It's the same with climate. There is a leap that I think needs to be made for some people still where they realize in order for us all to survive, like the plants and animals, the ecosystems around us need to survive as well. And so there's this link where you sort of realize that the rights of nature are my rights because I am nature, I'm part of nature. How do you communicate that to someone in middle America? I think a lot of people already have that feeling depending on where they are you know and the closer to nature they are maybe the more likely yeah. i think people are to recognize that there needs to be some level of support for the rights of nature you know there's a woman named polly higgins who i'm sure you know she passed away sadly but she made it her mission to begin the conversation at large about this and she founded an organization called stop ecocide because she looked at homicide as the murder of a human, but ecocide is the murder of nature. And she started StopEcocide.Earth, which is now, I know Julia from Grounded and others have been really flying the flag since we lost Polly to bring this idea to, to reality. And it's been based on this idea of creating a legal framework or new legal frameworks that are designed to support the rights of nature. Now, that is gaining momentum. Like Ecuador has recently passed the first rights for nature. There are other places in the world, even communities that are now beginning to do this. I don't remember where it was, but somebody just gave the rights of 
personhood to a river, which is quite amazing. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, this actually reflects the principles of indigenous communities around the world. So can you talk to me a little bit about the work that Grounded is doing in these areas? I know that Grounded has been very involved with developing capacity for indigenous leaders to intersect in some of these areas. There's legal work happening. Yeah, it's very rooted in indigenous ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of relating to the environment. I think Grounded is in the process of fleshing out, you know, how to scale this up, basically. But we're at so far as, you know, there's a, a real grant-making component that we're starting to pilot to support projects like this and in the same, you know, bucket of changing our legal framework. So that's half of I, I would say right now, like half of what we're working on is like figuring out sort of the grant making program to sort of fund primarily indigenous communities who are like leading these kinds of efforts already. And then the other part of it is really, and this is more where I come in, is like really with the sort of bird's eye view that Grounded has in this whole landscape, including with Ecoside, is figuring out how do we, you know, best convene all of these people who are doing this work and need more support and build that connective tissue between groups and also tell their story through strategic media. How do we bring in, you know, pop culture to amplify the message? How do we connect them with people who can actually draft and pass policy to support these efforts? And how do we, you know, work together to produce content that educates, you know, policymakers on on this issue and, and why it's a, a good idea for all of us? And Broadly speaking, that's that's how we're starting to approach it. Let's talk about the political landscape here in the U.S. We've just seen the SCOTUS decision regarding the EPA versus uh, West Virginia, the rollback of federal oversight of many things that we, for a generation, have taken for granted on the environmental front. And I think that this is actually, much like it is for re- reproductive rights, causing people to rethink the very fundamentals of the way that these things are being approached. And so you had said something to me earlier about the idea of a constitutional amendment for nature. And I found that to be like, wow, such a big idea. Is it time for big ideas? What would it look like if we were to pursue that as a strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think we are, it is definitely time for big ideas. We need solutions as large as the crisis we now face, right? You know, this, I started thinking about this because I just, the, my, the question I had when I heard, you know, Mexico is, is you know, cons- was considering enshrining the rights of nature and their legal frameworks. My immediate question was, how the hell do you get that done in the United States, right? Like, is there an existing constitutional amendment where you could sue, like, for the rights of nature and it would hold up in the Supreme Court, especially this Supreme Court, that's just, you know. And, you know, my thing on this is, especially now with that EPA ruling and all the other rulings, like what we have to remember is the way we got to this point was the fossil fuel industry played a very long game, or at least these fossil fuel backed politicians played a very long game to pack our courts and our state legislatures to pass and uphold these very anti-environmental pro pro big business policies and you know just as an organizer i'm thinking if that's the game they want to play then fuck this 
we need to rewrite the Constitution. So it doesn't matter how many judges they pack in these courts or how many state legislatures they take over. At the end of the day, our rights to a livable planet are enshrined in our Constitution. I don't see why we haven't you know, started talking about that already. I think it's the most inspiring thing I've heard in a long time. And it's the first thing that, I, I mean, while it might be a massively big lift to be able to consider, it seems to be the first idea that actually could be based on the will of the people. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you'd need, a, a, you know, it's a multi-year, <laughs> I don't want to say multi-decade, but like could be multi-decade, but multi-optimistically multi-year push because you need, you know, it's like two thirds of state legislatures need to ratify. I mean, it's deep organizing that needs to happen. But I will say this, I think my gut is, I have no data to support this. It's a gut feeling based on just my, my view of the, the climate movement and even outside the climate movement, just with like, you know, farmers in, in Trump country that have to grow food to feed the nation. Their livelihoods are tied to the land and they are struggling right now more than ever because of this issue. I think we could do that a lot faster than, than might have been possible, you know, if you asked me a couple years ago if we could pass a, a, an amendment to, <laughs> to enshrine the rights of nature in our constitution. How do, you, how do you get that through the, with, a, with, a, with le state legislators that, that are not and or will not be friendly to this? Or which are bought by yeah. big business, which would potentially be the ones that would object. The way you get anything else through in this climate, you fight harder than the other side. What does that look like? I mean, what, I mean, cause yeah. I mean right now, and, and this goes to Roe and it goes to all the other things that are going on, this is almost seems the fight of our life mm -hmm. for who we want to be as a country, what kind of world we want to live in. So to me, like you, this is really, a, this is an inspiring idea because I think we have to take just extraordinary action to, to, to do something. And um, what I struggle with though is, is what's the message that, and, and, and maybe what you said about the people, maybe we're not so far apart with people who are closer to nature, farmers, the people that we anyone in a rural community, anybody in a rural community who right. So maybe we're not far apart. Maybe this message does work for them because uh, anyway, I, I, I'm not. It's not a question. It's just I love this idea because I think we have to be radical right now, mm -hmm. and radical is not a great term. It turns people off, but we have to have some radical thinking. Mm -hmm. We're not in normal times. We don't have, right. uh, and why don't we be radically sensible? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the the separation is an illusion. It's always an illusion. It's perpetuated by the industry. I think that's a large part of where grounded comes in and where we're focused is answering those questions. Like, how do you message this to people? Do we need different messages for different audiences? But I really think, from what I've seen so far, it's like, can we force companies? I mean, can through social through buying product, saying, you know what, if you're not on board in climate change, if you're not on board, I'm not going to buy your product anymore. I mean, the reality, though, is that most of the companies who say they're for climate are still the biggest producers of the problem. And so it doesn't matter, and I'm going to call them out, whether it's Ikea or Unilever, where we all go to these places where their executives stand up and say, like, we believe in, like, da-da-da, mm -hmm. not, you know, trying to differentiate themselves on this 
scale from ExxonMobil and Shell, you're still cutting down virgin forests with IKEA to produce cardboard. And they pretend that they don't, and then they get caught and something happens and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that most big companies are still committing sins. And they do it because of price efficiency. And so there is a, still a fundamental disconnect between the profit motive and the nature motive. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you quickly, we kind of skipped over the second bucket in our three little buckets. Mm-hmm. So the first bucket was about this kind of clean energy infrastructure, the off-ramp. The third bucket is, I love this idea of a constitutional amendment or just some form of enshrined legal rights for nature. But the second one was about drawdown. Mm-hmm. And regenerative agriculture in particular is the closest that we seem to have to a magic bullet because not only does it sequester carbon, it can actually rehabilitate land, which can take pressure off of deforestation Mm -hmm. and, quite frankly, rehabilitate food production from land that has been decimated. So uh, to me, I just feel like regenerative agriculture is this massive opportunity. Can you talk to us about what Grounded thinks about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing to start with is there are a ton of nature-based solutions for drawdown. Regen Ag is one of them. You know, our oceans have a big role to play, seagrass, kelp forests, proforestation you talked about. But regenerative agriculture is very interesting because, as you just pointed out, it's a strategic initiative, right? It's something that if we do it, it also solves a lot of other issues at the same time. Even just uh, re- uh, there's been some research around very recently around how it also increases crop yields without all the inputs needed in in traditional agriculture. It reduces fertilization needs. Mm -hmm. Which is important because right now there's a fertilization shortage because of the high natural gas prices. Because I just found out natural gas is like an ingredient in our fertilizer, which is a whole other thing. So you eliminate the need for natural gas-based fertilizers. So that's strategically why regenerative agriculture is super important. And in the U.S., there's a couple things I should say. The, the, let's start with the stakes, too. If we don't scale up regenerative agriculture, we have like 58 harvests left before our soil turns into dust and actually releases carbon dioxide that's already been sequestered. It was 60 harvests as of two years ago. We're at 58 harvests now. So there's a finite amount of... Is that years? Does that mean years? That? I, think it's a, I think it's one harvest a year. Yeah, yearly annual harvest. So those are the stakes if we don't scale up regenerative agriculture. Now, in the U.S., the question becomes, so what do we do? How do we scale it up? The main vehicle for anything to do with agriculture in the United States is the Farm Bill. That gets re, I'm blanking on the word, reauthorized every five years. The next year it's up for reauthorization is next September, September uh, 2023. So there's been a lot of... After the midterms. After the midterms, right. So it's like kind of, you know, I've, I've started to dig into it now to figure out what it looks like to, you know, do a big push around region ag. It's difficult to say right now just because we have to see how these midterms play out. But I will say this, like, if you needed another reason to vote in the midterms, <laughs> think about the soil under your feet and the fact that it's a carbon bomb if we don't do anything about it. Alternatively, it could be the magic bullet that saves us all if we do do something about it next year. So let's uh, let's vote in those midterms and see where we land. It seems to me that you and potentially grounded by default are putting more thought and focus on 
the political elements of climate than you used to. I mean, certainly I've known Grounded for a while. It's been focused more on climate solutions. It seems like now politics is a climate solution. Because a lot of the solutions need policy to support them and implement them, we've learned. Not all of them. There are a lot of people around the country who are doing great things, but when it comes to things like regenerative agriculture, farmers need you know, resources and training to do that. And if we're going to do it at scale and do it very quickly in the time frame that we need to to save our asses from climate change, the government has to be involved. Can I ask you just real quick, yeah. for the common person out there, what exactly is regenerative agriculture? So regenerative agriculture is an alternative, more sustainable way of farming, which is uh, it's better for the environment. It is um, not anti-till, but you don't till the land. So you retain the nutrients, you protect the health of the soil, which helps it retain more carbon. And it's also based on using more permaculture rather than monoculture, which creates a more resilient sort of crop yield for farmers. Okay. I think it's good for people just to know that a little bit. And no tilling was actually bad for the... Yeah. It's very destructive for the, for the land. And you actually don't need to do it to produce a lot of food for people. And you can cycle through with regenerative agriculture crop yields. So one of the biggest obstacles, again, it comes down to business models in the United States. A lot of the farmland is owned by big companies who monocrop or monoculture the farming. And one of the tenets of regenerative agriculture is that you cycle through different types of product in a kind of more holistic way. And that cycle, which could actually result in two or three harvests in a year, will then provide different nutrients that rest in the ground and then provide the nutrients for the next wave of things. But it's very difficult to do monocultured crops over and over again when you're doing regenerative agriculture, which affects effectively the business model of North American farming. That's why it's so difficult to get regenerative agriculture at scale in the U.S. Oddly enough, in Europe, it's a little bit easier because Europe has this really strange legislation that was a result of World War II when they nearly had famine. And so the what's called the common agricultural policy in Europe has prevented large-scale farming from taking hold across many places. That's why when you are riding the Eurostar through the Netherlands or Germany or these places, you see lots of little patchwork small farms. That's because there's a policy in place that actually prevents large-scale agriculture from buying up all those farms. But the result of that, too, is that you then have smaller farms, more like distributed farming techniques that can then be kind of managed in different ways that happen to be less focused on monocultures. So in a weird way, that... Probably out of, out of necessity, right? Well, I mean, they did it They did it because they didn't want to have the hands of food production in the hands of a couple people because they were worried about what would happen if there was a war or a situation that prevented that from getting into the hands of the people. The U.S. hasn't had that experience, so we've allowed that power to concentrate into the hands of you know very large farming conglomerates. So we only got a few minutes left here. Can you talk to me a little bit about what do you think is the biggest jump the Grounded needs to make right now as an organization to get to the success that you guys want to have, which I suppose is impact on climate solutions? I think right now, I mean, maybe this is too inside baseball for Grounded, but we are in a new phase for the organization. You know, I'm brand new to the role and figuring out 
we're all right now figuring out like really doing deep work right now to align on like values and like why we're even doing this, especially because this is such a complex issue. It's actually, it's not fun for your mental health to work on this all the time. Yeah, it's, and, it can get very depressing. And one of the things I've seen with Grounded that's been very interesting and very refreshing is, especially with Julia and Tom, the executive director, is they're really trying to figure out how to make Grounded's model itself sustainable so that we don't all burn out and that we have the support systems that we need to continue doing this work, which I have not really seen a ton of other environmental organizations like really invest in that kind of like deep culture work and like just rethinking team structures altogether to be regenerative, which Julia knows more what a regenerative like team structure means than I do. And, and some of it is inspired by, I think, Julia's conversations with especially frontline communities and indigenous organizers. You know, there's this sort of line of thinking that we need teams who can go through these alternating periods of like rest and an action, right? Like when one team is, you know, in the field doing the work, we have our other teams like taking a step back and handling the personal shit that gets thrown by the wayside when you're responsible for like massive national climate campaigns like this. So I think that's internally the biggest leap they're now making is really figuring out how do you create a, a completely new model of thinking about how teams work and grow and like fight together that um, is not based on the sort of exploitative model of, you know, a traditional for-profit business. Interesting. Rat, we're wrapping up. Any final thoughts on the big picture here? Because it does scale up from grounded through accountability, through hub into the wider society about the leap we need to all make. Yeah, I think we have lots of work to do, it seems like. And, it, um, you know, we need people like you and, and, and the organization um, to, to do it and to, to push us and to keep keep our 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 legislators or our, our lawmakers accountable. I think um, it scares the daylights out of me that, you know, I've got 15-year-old, 16-year-old kids, and you're talking about in their lifetime mm -hmm. what we know and, and how, you know, what, what we know in terms of our food and our supply of that and, and um, is, <laughs> you know, just I can't even, I can't even speak right now. It scares the daylights out of me. But I mean, and also you also give me hope that that there's big thinking around how to fix this and how to make progress and how to actually make things better. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. The constitutional amendment concept. <laughs> I just looked up. <laughs> there are 33 amendments, so I suppose this would be the 34th amendment. But I think maybe only 27 have been ratified fully. So. And over 10,000 have been suggested. So it w it's not out of the, it is not out of the realm of possibility to get an amendment on the table. Here's my thinking with big ambitious ideas like this. These are the kinds of, when you ask people to do small things, we don't do it. Because it, in, instinctively, it's like, why does this make a difference? You know, like, why would I spend my time on this? How does this do anything? When you hear, uh, it, it's much more effective rallying people around big ideas like this, as ambitious as they are, because 
what we stand to win, which is relief from climate anxiety, it's food for our kids in 58 harvests, far outweighs the idea. By fighting these small battles, right? Why are we fighting just for clean water or clean air or for regulating a, a polluting industry? Why do we keep fighting these small things? Right. It would be the 28th Amendment. Oh, good. <laughs> I like that number. <laughs> Lucky 28. But, you know, you might get a lot of buy-in and saying, we need a constitutional convention. Mm -hmm. We need to relook at the way we are doing things. I think that's a fair thing to call for. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. I think it's brilliant. Maybe 2023. There you go. Okay. <laughs> We're signing off. That's the big leap. That's the jump. Figuring out how to live a better life and make the world better. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. For you can find out more about Grounded at grounded.org. For Accountability Inc. and Hub Culture, I'm Stan Stoniker. Thanks again to our friends at Neuhaus for hosting us here in New York. Find more podcasts and conversations on LinkedIn Live, on Forbes with Rhett, and over at hubculture.com with Zeke, RAI. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Thank you.